yes, and I believed him. And then I gradually got to know the brother, Eddie, because I visited him too. And Eddie told me the truth. And when he looked at me and he said, I shot and killed those kids, he had like this look in his eye like he didn't know what happened either. He had done it. He wasn't denying that he did it. But when you're, he was in an emotional state, he'd been very upset. I was just saying this early. He'd gotten a girl pregnant. He'd grown up very poor. His flashpoint was, don't you call me white trash. Don't you look down on me because I'm poor. He'd gotten a girl pregnant, and he went to the family, and he was going to do an honorable thing. He wanted to marry the girl. And the father met him on the front porch. Now, these are all very poor people. All, many of them sharecroppers in Louisiana and all. And the father came out on the porch with a shotgun and says to him, you white trash, you know what, get out of here. If you think you're going to marry my daughter, you got another thought coming. And Eddie went ballistic. He came back to the house. He cut the telephone wires to the house. He had a sawed-off shotgun. He was threatening to kill everybody in the house. His mother knew the sheriff that came and got him, put him in jail. He settled down for a few days. And then it happened a few weeks before the murder happened when he killed these kids. We'll never know, but something happened in the process of it where I think the boy, David LeBlanc, there he's standing over him and his girlfriend with this gun, and he said to him, put down that gun and I'll show you who's a man. And the way Eddie described it, see, when you have a gun, all it takes is this. It's such a small physical motion. A four-year-old, my, one of my classmates, Betty, her son was playing cops and robbers with a kid in the front and bang, 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 you're dead. And he goes in the house where his daddy keeps a, a gun and his knife staying right by the bed. Kid comes out with the gun. Bang, 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 you're dead. And he was dead. He had used a real gun. And Eddie goes to tell me about it, and he didn't deny it. And I could tell by his eyes. He just said, I shot him. And he, he, that was all he said. And it, I think he spent the rest of his life trying to get a hold of what he did. He paid for it because it was the rest of his life in prison. And it's a hard prison to be in in Louisiana. And, uh, but in terms of comprehending, and you know, I wonder about that because I'm not sure we really can comprehend the good we do, the really good things that come out well either. Bad things too, Sometimes, especially if we're insensitive and we say something or really hurt somebody, uh, we make fun of somebody and it makes everybody laugh and then we find out they're very depressed, they go home. We do things, and but when it comes to murder, when it comes to you went bang, 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 and these kids are dead, I think he dealt with it the rest of his life. And he spent the rest of his life in prison till he died. He died of a heart attack a year ago. And he became a model prisoner. He was a good worker. In the beginning, he had all these violent outbursts against guards, everybody. He was desperate inside. He was chaos inside. And then he met love. And not only did I visit him regularly so that he could come to trust that I was coming, 
there were others who wrote to him, and he began to experience the love of a family he had never had. And he settled down inside. And the other thing, the incentive now in prison, if you don't get a write-up, a disciplinary write-up, then you can have these contact visits. You have different prisons. Death row is very different. You're in your cell 23 out of 24 hours a day. But when you have a life sentence, you graduate, you start off in a lockdown cell with one other person, you work out in the fields, and you like earn your points. And then you move to a dormitory. And then you work in different parts of the prison, and you go through different jobs. And he really found his job in welding because he was a really good welder. And then he knew if he got a disciplinary write-up, he couldn't have a contact visit. And that's all the difference in the world because a contact visit is you can sit around these tables in the main visiting room. And Louisiana has like a lot of food, a lot of good food. So you have these different concession stands of the different groups, like the sober group. They had hot tamales. So then you have people that have po'boys. Then you have another group that have barbecue brisket and, and pork chops. And then you have people who do breakfast. And they all serve different kinds of things in it, and fried chicken and good food. So you don't want to lose that contact visit. And Eddie had never had another violent outburst, a write-up. He never had a disciplinary infraction. He had a reason. I want that visit. That visit means a lot. So that's Eddie. That's the two brothers. It's a very complex story. And it's all in the book, Dead Man Walking, if you read the book. Somebody else, what question? What came to your mind? Yeah. Um, so Excellent question. Ever after, after Pat, whenever I went and visited somebody on death row, I always wrote to the victim's family. I always reached out to them. Almost always they wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. They were put on a seesaw. I feel for them. You have a prosecutor who's going to go for the death penalty. You want the victim's families on your side, right? And it's very adversarial. And, uh, but I always tried. And the second set of, of victims' families with Robert Lee Willie, I went and visited them. They let me go and visit them. And, uh, and they told me all about their daughter. That scene is in Dead Man Walking where they're talking about their daughter. And where we broke was they thought because I'd gone to visit them that I was on their side. Therefore, I'm for the death penalty, too. And I never said anything like that. They interpreted it. So then when you have the pardon board hearing for Robert Willie, the one who had participated and killed their daughter, I show up at the pardon board hearing to speak for him that he not be killed, and they felt like I had betrayed him. And then we went back and forth. Vernon Harvey, he was an old cuss. You know, he'd been in the Army... And he loved to spar and argue with me. So he even had a heart attack, and his wife called me and said, I think Vernon needs you to come in there and visit him and argue with him because he's given up. And I'll go in, how are you doing, Vernon? He goes, yeah, you still believe And we get going. His blood pressure would come up, help his heart. I made him an apple pie. So we had this back and forth, back and forth. 
constantly. It was very ambivalent. It could change on a dime in a moment. You're welcome. Yes. Some people on death row are crazy. There's a God who is accused of being a, a, a serial killer. And everybody who knows him knows he's crazy as alone. He's mentally ill. But they wanted to go for the death penalty because supposedly he had raped and killed women. The lawyers are just beginning to find some evidence that shows maybe he wasn't guilty. When you have people who are mentally ill... And the biggest residents, well, I don't know what other word to use it, of the mentally ill in this country are jails and prisons because mentally ill people do violent acts or terrible acts, and they end up in jail. So they're all different kinds of personalities. Manuel Ortiz is a guy from El Salvador that I've been accompanying and visiting for 10 years. He's innocent as the day is long. We just got him good attorneys to show his innocence. And he's going on 23 years on death row. And I learned from him. He's a, he's a wonderful man with a lot of integrity, and he has endured great suffering. And so everybody's different on death row. You can't say all these are death row prisoners and they're all alike. You can't say that about the guards either. Some of the guards love, you know, they have that authority. And then and they get over on the on the prisoners and try to set them up. Others are kind. Eddie, Eddie Sonier, when he first went to prison, he's Cajun, and he was long. There's this seasoned sausage called boudin, and he goes, oh, sometimes we visit. He goes, oh man, sis, I miss that boudin so bad. I miss my Cajun food. And he said, and you know what happened? So here comes one of the guards. And he opens up his lunchbox, and he, he says, Hey, Sonia, come over here. And he opens it up, and he gave me some booty out of his lunchbox. It's one of the guards. Other guards, he'd look at and say, Don't mess with him. He's not fair. He sets you up, and then he does you in. So human beings come in a mixed bag. Somebody else, what occurred to you? Either a question you had, a thought... Did you? I want to ask this question. Did you think about anything differently as a result of that talk, or you came out of that talk saying it's just what you always thought? Did you have any insight about anything in the course of that talk that maybe you think about now a little differently? Don't let me down. Don't let me down. Did it hit you in any way? Did it change you in any way? Did it help you reflect deeper on Where? Yes. Um, I think like the way that you phrased about how like um, you like refer it to like if it was your own little brother that had done something and then they tried to like put him on death row then you would like say oh that's my little brother like I've grown up with him you know so like if you right. look at it that way like instead of just looking at it as a stranger but someone that you've actually like known and grown up with I think that it's like really humanizing to like think of it that way yeah that's great because when you personalize it see it's easy to kill a monster but it's hard to kill a real human being my little brother's not a monster. And you could tell the story. My mom and dad really tried to help him. He got mixed up with the wrong set of kids when he was in eighth grade. He went through high school. They were getting him on drugs. He was doing all these things. They brought him to therapists. 
they they brought him to you know get released from his addiction he kept going back he kept going back and one night they got involved in something and he, and he ended up killing somebody in a convenience store questions any questions yes Therein hangs a tale. So complex, if you read that memoir. In the beginning, both brothers got the death penalty. Supreme Court of Louisiana, when you got to review every case, and this was early in the death penalty case. This is the United, in Louisiana scenario, Pat was the older brother who had been in Angola for stealing a truck with his cousin, and he's the one who coerced the younger brother, Eddie, into, into killing. Because he said to him, I don't want to go back to Angola. we got to kill them so they can't be witnesses against us. And they believed that. And they overturned Eddie's, the younger brother's, death sentence. And he got two life sentences. And he got a letter from the DA, he said, and he questioned, how can I have two life without parole sentences? And the DA, in no uncertain terms, said, because you are never going to walk out of this prison. If by some chance you get out of one life sentence, you got the next one waiting for you. And Pat confessed to the murder because he was scared. He was, he was being questioned by the police who had beaten him up, knocked out his teeth. He had a gun on him, and he was so scared that they literally were going to kill him. He gave them everything they wanted to hear. And he said, yeah, I did it. Now, here's the thing. When you go into trial, you have an adversarial system of coming to truth. What do you think that means? It's adversarial to come to truth. You have prosecution, you have defense. So what do you think prosecution does? They bring the charge, first-degree murder. So now you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we're going to show you beyond a reasonable doubt that this charge, that he's guilty of what we're charging him with. You never find people innocent at a trial. You never, you never will hear the four-person of the jury stand up and say, we find the defendant innocent. You, you find him guilty or not guilty of the crime is charged. So it's first-degree murder. And the adversarial system, the prosecutor, has a scenario of the crime, the motive of the crime, how the crime happened, why it happened, and they have evidence, forensic evidence, that has to match that scenario. And what happened, how close the bullet holes were. And they bring that in all likelihood, he isn't the one who did it. But guess what? They want to get somebody, as long as they got one of the brothers, and the Supreme Court had overturned Eddie's sentence and given him life, believing he was the younger brother under the influence of Pat. And so they gave him the death penalty anyway, and executed him anyway. By the time you get a good lawyer to go in to show, see if Pat had had a good lawyer, he could have gone and he could have shown him. Look what you have here in the report. This is how he said he did it. It couldn't, it couldn't happen that way. It doesn't match the forensic evidence of the bullet. But he didn't have a good lawyer. 
He hardly saw his lawyer at all. He saw a lawyer for one half hour before he goes to trial for his life. And that's what happens. You have poor people that get appointed a lawyer who's underpaid and overworked and no money to get independent testing. And you're in this social milieu where everybody hates a defense lawyer. The judge often sides with the prosecution and every objection the prosecution raises, upheld. Every time the defense raises an objection, uh, overturned. And they get cowed and they just stop fighting <laughs> and don't raise objections. And it's over. Pat, in one day, they picked the jury. In one, two days, the trial was over. They found him guilty. And I think by the Friday afternoon of that week, they had sentenced him to death, and it was all over. That kind of justice, in that kind of climate, you always have to look at climate. What's the climate in California? You have 744 people on death row. What's the climate here about the death penalty? Do you know? Yeah. Are you grabbing onto the rail or are you raising your hand? Do you know what the climate is in California? How, how do, just people you talk to. What do you hear people saying about the death penalty? First of all, do you hear people talking about it at all? Not much? Talk about the drought? Talk about El Nino supposed to be coming? And then there's supposed to be flooding? Get ready. So not the death penalty too much, huh? What kind of issues do people, what's the climate around it here of criminal justice, people in prison? Anything other than here at Sacred Heart, what you take in social justice? And, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a problem. I could definitely be wrong, but I'm pretty sure like the climate around here is that like, uh, people are getting put in prison way too long for like drug-related crimes. Mm -hmm. You know, have you ever heard that California is the birthplace of the gods? Who's studying the Hebrew Bible? California is the birthplace of the gods. The Tigris Euphrates, where all the major religions began, and that's California, California. So you know what you began in this state? Things begin and originate here. You're very creative people in California. The Eastern religions came over in the 60s and people started learning yoga and transcendental meditation starts in California. Comes over across the Pacific, hits you first. And then you also invented the credit card, first time credit cards we used here, the hula hoop, organic gardening. <laughs> California, the birthplace of the gods. Creative stuff happens there. And now you, I believe, and we're working in California and people are becoming awake about the death penalty. And I hope by the time you put your head on your pillow tonight, you have a stance about the death penalty. Or if you don't, you're going to dig and get it. Because we need you to be one of the awake people in this society to help California get the death penalty off of the books. And there's going to be legislative action, there's going to be referendum, and you're going to be voting. You're going to be of the voting age. I hope that you're going to be one of those forces. I work for that. I work with a lot of good people here in California. Waking up the public, of we don't need the death penalty. And in California, it's really progressive stuff. How many people are we throwing in prison? Who's the country that's the largest incarcerated in the world? China, US. Hear anybody else? 
Russia. 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 China. U.S. hands down. One out of every hundred adults is in prison in the United States. We have made drugs a felony. And 70% of people are in prison because drugs were involved in their crime. A lot of them are there for nonviolent crimes, and we throw people into prison. And the death penalty is the apex of that. Here's the ultimate punishment here with the death penalty. And you 744 people you have on death row, and it's 25 years before anybody's executed. Chances are people on your death row will never be executed. You're going to keep them in those cells because you don't have much heart to actually do it. In the deep south states that practice slavery, where 78% of the actual executions happen, that's where the deaths really happen. It's not here. So how do you explain that prosecutor, I was just with... The group of people last night, the parents from this school, that talked about a crime where somebody committed murder and the particular person who was in the group or knew somebody did not want the death penalty, but the DA was going after the death penalty despite what the victim's family wanted. So why are, do you think prosecutors or DAs are going after the death penalty knowing they can put people on death row and they're never going to really be executed? What do you think is at play? Social analysis. What's at play? Why would they do that? Hmm? Feels just. Feels just? Yeah. <laughs> One would hope. You know what the mission of a prosecutor is? To get justice in a case. Justice. But guess what happens? Politics. What's that mean? I'm going to be elected. What do the constituents want? They want me to be tough on crime. So we've done, they have studies that show that in election years, it shows they go for more death penalties in an election year than they do otherwise because they think it's what the constituents want. Yes? Is it true that in a murder case, people, potential jurors can be excluded because they don't believe in the death penalty? They are excluded. And th but that means that a jury does not have to assign a death penalty even if someone is guilty. That's right. But if you don't have a good lawyer bringing you through that yeah. and, and showing you your rights. Yeah. In fact, Richard Glossop, here's a man in Oklahoma. I got involved in this case. Wrote him a letter every now and then. Somebody arranges a phone call, and he tells me on the phone, Sister Helen, I hope you don't mind. I know I didn't ask your permission, but would you be with me if I'm executed? January 5th, that conversation happened. His name is Richard Glossop. Like the word gossip, but with an L in it. And I look into his case. And I know there's no way. If he's asking me to be with him, there's no way I'm going to say no. And there's no way I'm going to just simply attend his execution and be there without looking in his case. And he's innocent. So it means I'm going to do everything I know how to do to keep this innocent man from being executed. So guess what I did, first, second, and third? What would you do? Somebody just asked you to be with him when he's executed. You begin to look. You see he's innocent. What would you do? Like uh, reply saying yes, then I would schedule a visit with him and bingo first thing let me go meet this man just what happened I go visit with him 
What would you do next? This is Sneaky Jesus, writ large. See this? You think I've wanted to get involved in another case? I got Manuel on death row. I don't look for these things. So what would you do? He's innocent. What are we going to do? Just be creative. Throw out wild things. Get on Oprah. Whatever. But she's not having a show anymore, huh? No? <laughs> she has her own network. That's, must be from California. California. So I get lawyers. I summon lawyers. I call them up. They hate to take my phone calls. They go, oh, God, that nun's on the phone. And if she's on the phone, he said, Mark Olive was taking the case. He has to file what's called a successor petition. And that means Richard's already been through the courts. He's been through the appeals. They've all found him guilty. The appeals courts upheld it. The state Supreme Court in Oklahoma upheld it. Went before the Supreme Court of the United States. They upheld it. He has to file what's called a successful petition. And that is like taking a snowball and throwing it at the moon, and it has to go into a little hole as big as a golf ball. That's what it means to file a successful petition. What do the lawyers have to do? You have to hire investigators. You have to go out and try to get evidence that was never investigated in the first place. We don't have any money. They're all working pro bono. You know what pro bono means? The lawyers get paid nothing. They do it because they believe in this man's innocence. They're giving hours, weeks, months to this for Richard. So they get say, you done none, you go get the money for investigators. So I start talking to people I know, hey, would you be able to contribute something for these investigators? So I, I go out. I know that's my part of the deal. I asked them to be part of it. And then we just start looking into the case, and you find out, what is Richard Glossop? He's supposed to be executed on September 16th. What is today? September. So how many days? Five days he has to live, and he's going to be executed. Oklahoma. And Oklahoma is one of the big killing states. Oklahoma is second only to Texas in the number of people they executed. They are very serious about killing this man. And the governor is not about to do anything. She has power as a governor to grant a reprieve. And she goes, I'm not granting any reprieve. The courts have found him guilty. Let him go to the courts. And so they've been digging to get evidence. And it's just beginning to come out. So we start having press conferences to introduce doubt. How this, it's very possible this man, he might be innocent. And why are we saying that? Because what was their proof against, what, did, what evidence did they have that he killed a person? Only the word of a guy, Justin Sneed, who confessed to the police, admitted he had killed a person in a motel, and a robbery gone bad, admitted he did the killing. And how does Richard get involved in it? Because he said he bullied him into it, or he pressured him into it. And you see that the two police detectives named Bemo and Cook were talking to Justin Sneed, who was only 19 years old. No lawyer. They have him under custody for six months. And they start introducing into, the con into it, well, you know, Richard is putting it all on you. Richard, did you know we had him under arrest? They introduced Richard Glossop into the case. 
And entering to this scene, the DA, whose name is Bob Macy, who cuts notches on his belt every time he gets a death penalty. He alone, by himself, got 54 death penalties, and he was reelected three times because the people of Oklahoma liked this tough-on-crime DA, and he knows he gets him elected. How does he go after Richard Glossop? There's no forensic evidence in the motel room when a man was killed. There's no fingerprint. There's no sign that can link Richard Glossop in that room. How did they go for the death penalty? Because one of the aggravating circumstances for the death penalty, you don't just murder somebody. You've got to have special aggravating circumstances. You kill more than one person. It's especially heinous and cruel. Or murder for hire and what they got Sneed to confess to him was Richard put me up to this and he said to me we'll split the money you rob him but he put me up to it that's an aggravator Bob Macy the DA goes for it Richard Glossop had terrible defense he had no defense they did no investigation at all and Richard's facing death so now the investigator's been working there in Oklahoma and all over to try to get evidence to show this adversarial system of coming to justice. You present this. Well, what's the motive of why Richard Glossop, who was running this motel, the man killed Barry Ventries, was the owner? And you look at the, the motel receipts, you can see the motel's doing pretty good. He didn't even get bonuses. Why now is he going to hire somebody to go kill his boss because he wants to split the money with him. When he's in charge of the money, he can skim off those receipts anytime he wants. So how are you going to show robbery's a motive? Well, what you want to try to show is, well, actually, the motel wasn't doing very well. He was skimming off money, and he was hiding it from his boss, so he had a motive to kill his boss. Guess what? Everything depends when you're going to defend Richard Glossop. Showing the motel receipts. Look. Look at the books. You can see for yourself. Guess what? There was a mysterious flood, and the motel receipts disappear. And you have Justin Sneed saying, yeah, Richard helped me do this, and after we killed him, we got, took the shower curtain and we wrapped the body up in it. You want to show that shower curtain, don't you? Because the shower curtain's going to so, show only Justin Sneed's fingerprints on the shower curtain. Richard's on it. Richard's, there's nothing to connect Richard in that room. So the motive, he was scared to lose his job, but then suddenly the defense can't get what they need to show. It's called exculpatory evidence. It points toward the fact that this person may not be guilty. And it ended up the jury heard none of that. And now, the lawyers, and this is the stuff we've been getting out to the press. I just wrote an article for CNN, and it's called Richard Glo What Gl Richard Glossop's Jury Never Heard. It should come out in a day or two. Look for it. So they didn't hear that the motel receipts had disappeared. And then the lawyers have looked at Justin Sneed, this 19-year-old kid who was under pressure, and then gradually he learned, here's what you give them, this is what they want, and I'm going to get out of here. And he made a plea deal. He admitted he murdered the person. They threatened him with the death penalty. 
He tells them what they want to hear about Richard. He gets out from under the death penalty, and he's in a medium security prison now. And he has a nice job making furniture. He can work with computers. He's serving a sentence for life, and Richard, who was not there, is facing death. And that's how broken it is. We have 155 wrongfully convicted people who have come off a death row. And you know what saved their lives? People like you. Volunteers are in college, a little older than you. They volunteer. It's called Innocence Projects. They go in and do the investigation that was never done because Richard Glossop was poor. He had to take the lawyer who was appointed to him, and the lawyer didn't do anything. The lawyer was cowed. The lawyer was intimidated. The lawyer just stopped raising objections in the course of the trial. And that's how it works. So we got five more days. So now we're letting out to the press. They're just doing these press releases now and going into the courts saying, don't kill this man. We're coming up with new evidence. Give us a chance to find all of it and hopefully the governor to give us 60 days of reprieve. But the courts may very well say, you had your time in court, it's over, and turn him down, and he may be executed in five days. You pray for him. Pray for me. Pray for all these people that are working for Richard, that he won't be killed by Oklahoma. You can write to him, too. If you go on my webpage, it's sisterhelen.org forward slash Richard, and you can write to him. You've got to write quick, though. He's only got five days. So you just start trying to get the truth out to the people, because the people are good, but the people don't know what's going on all the time, you know? Okay, anybody else in, that, in the talk today? Yes. That's a very interesting question. When the victim's family, often this is the case, not always, often when the victim's family goes along with the DA and wants a death penalty, they give them a lot of attention. If they don't want the death penalty, they often disregard them and sometimes treat them shamefully. Because see, if a DA has in his mind or her mind, I'm going for the death penalty, then they get into winning. It's like the Green Bay Packers. It's just, we just want to win. And of the 155 people that have been let off the, of death row and exonerated, 90% of those cases are what you call prosecutorial misconduct. Prosecutors hid evidence. Prosecutors knew that there was DA, DNA that pointed to another person, and they hid it. That happened with John Thompson. The person who killed somebody wore a ski mask. And the DA in New Orleans had that ski mask and knew very well that the DNA on that ski mask did not match John Thompson. And they hid it for years. And John Thompson was on death row in Louisiana. Good lawyers, these good lawyers, get in there and start fighting for these clients. And they got the ski mask. They got the DNA test. And they said to the DA, you've been lying. You've been hiding this from this man. This man did not kill that person. And they finally got him freed. John Thompson runs a group in New Orleans now called Resurrection After Exoneration. 
What do you think that means? You need to be resurrected after you're exonerated? Aren't you free when you come out of that prison? What do you think that means, resurrection after exoneration? Uh. Why you need to be resurrected if you've been exonerated? Aren't you a free man? Does it maybe like help restore their like, uh, reputations? Reputations? What else do you think you're going to need if you've been on death row for 20 years, you're told when to get up, you're told when to move, you never touch a doorknob, you don't have any agency of freedom, and now you're out. And so what are you supposed to do for your life? Get a job, have a place to live. There was this man, Nate Fields, that was on the Dr. Fields show that we got on about Richard, and he talked about he was on death row 18 years, and they found out that the judge who put him on death row had been taking bribes. That's, boy, that's a big one. You expose that. I'm out of here. So they come to Nate, and they just, the lawyer visits him and says, Nate, you're going to be free. They found out your judge was taking bribes. So the day came for Nate to be freed. So he walks to the gate of the prison, and the guard was there, and he goes, what do I do? The guard said, well, you know, you just walk out. He said, I know, but what, what exactly do I do? Because he always was used to having a guard with him. He said, you walk out to prison, man, you're free. And he walked out through the gate, and then he said, I almost fell on my face, and it's because he saw a tree. He hadn't seen a tree in 18 years, and he looked up, and there was a tree. He crossed in traffic with his children because he didn't know how to cross the street. He almost got wiped out the first time he crossed. You've been caged and pinned in. And now you're free. And you're looking around. A lot of them didn't even know what a cell phone was. It never worked a computer. Looking at the cars, saying, wow, they got these cars. Look, it's got a little thing. You have a back window. You can see what you're backing up into or not. They have everything to learn. And then where do you get a job? Well, I was exonerated. It was a mistake. Right. Everybody in prison says they're innocent. You want a job? What can you do? Well, I've been in prison, oh, they didn't teach me too much. So you're gonna have to find an employer who's gonna take a chance on Nate Fields and give him a job and work with him. He has to learn how to socialize and be with people again. He has to learn everything, and that's why John Thompson calls a group resurrection after exoneration, because you gotta to learn to pick up your life and live it again. Any other things? Thoughts that hit you? Uh, I was just wondering, like, what Serna is like having met with him. He was a kid. He did a terrible thing. He's a kid. I, and we'll see what happens. But we had interesting discussions because he would talk about the Quran and I would talk about Jesus in the Bible. And uh, he had a really good team that tried to save his life, but. They were intent on the death penalty, so they kept portraying him as a hardened monster who hated people in the United States and he'd kill again, and so the only thing you can do is give him the death penalty. If you followed any of it, you could see. So it was a big fight, but they finally got me on to testify that I had witnessed him expressing sorrow for what he did. It's the only word 
of compassion the jury heard in that whole trial. And the prosecutor, I mean, they were fighting tooth and nail not to let me testify. We're not going to have a nun get up here and testify about how human that guy is, compassionate and all that. And they tried every way they knew to block me. But CNN, they have all these people at the trial, and they're all twittering. So you get like a blow-by-blow blow of what's happening because they're sending out constant tweets, tweeting the trials of America. And CNN got word that the prosecution was trying to block the dead man walking nun from testifying, and that went all over the social media. So then the judge was kind of under pressure because one of the ways you get a death penalty case overturned is that you don't allow mitigation to be shown during the trial. Mitigation meant, wait a minute, I did ex hear him express remorse, so they are blocking me every way they can from doing that. And one of the judge, one of the lawyers said to the Judge O'Toole, good old Judge O'Toole, we got a good Irish here with this Islamic kid and the Catholic nun, it was a great mix. And they said to him, Judge, no mitigation has been heard in this trial. All Sister Helen wants to do is talk about this conversation she had where she heard him express remorse. Don't you think that you need to have that somewhere in this trial? Or, Judge, they're going to overthrow this trial. We're going to go through this all over again. And the judge really knew that, so he allowed me. So the prosecutor is armed for bear with the nun up there. And so the defense had to ask me questions in a certain way. And at one point, she asked me, had a Jewish lawyer with an Islamic kid and a Catholic judge and a Catholic nun. It, it was really quite a mix. And so she asked me, well, what did you and Jahar ever, did you agree on everything? He's talking about the Quran. You're talking about Jesus and the Bible. Did you ever disagree? I said, yeah. One of the things we disagreed about was whether or not you could say that God is the God of love. And the prosecutor went, objection, Your Honor. And one of my lawyer friends was sending out a, an email around to friends and did this from the transcript where the prosecutor go, well, yeah, if God's a God of love. She goes, objection, Your Honor, to, from the prosecutor. She goes, nice. There will be no discussion of a God of love in this courtroom where we want this jury to kill this person. Don't you be bringing up any discussion of a God of love. So we sent that email around. Jahar is a human being and he came under the influence of his brother and he did an unspeakable act. And I think he'll be, I, my own take is, he'll regret it the rest of his life. He cry, he would cry when he came out, when he heard the victims and their story. He was young. He put the bomb in his backpack and he did a terrible thing and the bomb went off and people had their legs blown off. And if you see the videos, they're horrible. You see people's legs being blown off, you see people being killed. And the impact of that, because they were all testifying about their grief and their sorrow going into that kid and you did that. So what I was able to testify and I could I can tell you about it because it's part of the court record, was when I was talking to him about what had happened, I said, Jahar, look at the suffering of people because of that mom. I said, would you do that again? 
would you, do you hate the American people then? And he said to me, and he dropped his eyes, he said, nobody deserves to suffer like that. And that's what we were able to get out in testimony. And the way it was phrased, nobody deserves to suffer like that. It's kind of a general statement because they go through language, what things you can say, what things you can't. And that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, you talked about how someone was put to death using an electric chair. How does that, like, how long does that process take? They pull the switch three times. It's 1,900 volts. And then you have to let the body cool because there's a lot of ways this can go wrong. We've had people's heads catch on fire. We've had, it's bad. It's really, you bake all the organs in the person. Pat wanted to offer his his kidneys, his, you know, organs to people. And you can't give away baked organs. It's, so they pull the switch three times, 1,900 volts, then they let the body cool, then 500 volts, and then 1,900 volts. You got your question answered? Yes. Anybody else? Fun facts to know and tell about the death penalty. Here's the thing. Here's the little story. It's the people who have to do the killing the guards and the people who do the killing for us, because you'll never see it, but these guards are real people with jobs at San Quentin, the warden, and they're going to be brought in, and so your job tonight is to kill this person. What's going to happen to them? So look into this issue. Look into the millions of dollars you're spending to keep this machinery of death in place. Read, get information. and take a stand, and then act. Are we all waiting for that bell? You can't leave before the bell rings? Yes? So we get the, the picture that at the lower end of the economic ladder, people have a hard time uh, escaping the dynamics of the Who can? Who do you know? There's not one person that I've ever met who could afford a good lawyer who's on death row. Ever. There are no people with money. Because you get a good attorney who's going to argue for you, that DA will think 50 times before they go for the death penalty because they don't want to get in that court and lose. And they're going to have somebody doing pretrial motions fight to get the forensic evidence, find out when they lie, expose them, and they don't want to go through that. And that's the reason why. It's not that people with money don't do unspeakably terrible crimes, but you're never going to find them on death row. First of all, because no DA in their right mind is going to go after them because they got a good attorney. So here's a guy who's done a terrible crime, but he's got a court-appointed attorney. This is going to be slam dunk. We're going to go in and get us a death penalty. And that's the way it works. All you people on San Quentin are poor. You happen to have a good defense system because you're paying so much blooming money as taxpayers on both sides of this. But 
in the end. I don't know when that bell's ringing, but I'm done. I think we're done. I think you're done. Fine. Sister Helen is with us today. Um, this is the first of a series of interviews we're going to be doing on KSHS Radio. Um, and we're honored to have you with us. I think it's such like a, I think it's such a powerful message, um, and I think it's very inspiring to students yeah. like throughout the campus that you took a social justice issue and like made made it your life's mission to put an end to that. Um, so. well, sneaky Jesus got sneaky me Jesus. in. Yeah, I mean, I didn't seek to do this. I think someone said shirts are going to be made. For that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so yeah, first of all, we just wanted to thank you. Um, it's it's really an honor to have you. Uh, I kind of just one question that sure. wasn't going to be answered by any of your, um, by any of like your speeches. Just, um, it's occurring to me at the end. Like I noticed a lot of what you talk is like brings a powerful like message to all of us because uh, we are all young students that you're talking to. Do you feel like a more compelling or um, sense to like bring forth this like social injustice to kids? Like, do you feel like, um, like are you? Do you feel like a greater rush, sort of, as a public speaker when you're talking to kid, like students? No, it was really. I got to tell you this. One great thing about being young is you're learning so much and you're open to so much, and so it always feels special to me to be able to do this. And I had a whole day here, man. Y'all got brainwashed six ways to Sunday. I mean, hitting you every time you go. You're around the corner. There's the nun. It's been like six hours. Yeah. Wow. That's I'm yeah. tired. I think you talked about going to a movie tonight. I think first you might want to take a nap. That's just a long day. <laughs> but you know there's an energy you get back when you do this. Yeah. All the all the best stuff in life is mutual. So it's not like I poured myself out. I did expend myself. But I got you inside me now too. And your faces and your questions and this good school, man, do you know how lucky you are? And see this radio stuff? You get things yeah. out of the... I mean, I think radio is a very powerful way of, of reaching people. Mm-hmm. You're not distracted by pictures, or get, you know, with all that. You're listening, and you're hearing, and you're hearing stories. And that's great. It's true. Yeah, so. I, think, I, think that's, I think it's like an awesome opportunity you have here. Um, um, one, like, specific question I wanted to ask you, and it's actually, it's actually more general, but, like, do you have any, like, story that... Um, pertains to like so one thing you talked about is how the actions of um the of the person who's like on death row affected different people and like the victims weren't just the people who got killed Mm -hmm. um like you said like the warden and like the parents of the family do you have any specific story that like really keys us in on how much like this parents are affected or like a warden yeah yeah well, I mean, there was this guard on death row in Louisiana. Um, I mentioned him, I think, Fenton Cootie. He was a supervisor on death row, and I think he could have done that job till he retired. Because, you know, you keep order on the tier. You see the breakfast trays and the food trays are served and see that in an orderly way each man on the tier comes out to go take a shower, goes for exercise and all that. But then they moved him on to the execution squad. In Louisiana, they call it the TAC team tactical, which means you use force. And so he got involved then directly in executions. And what was really bad, he knew everybody on death row. He knew their names. Personal relationships. Personal relationships. That'll do you in. Just like you were saying earlier today, that whole school assembly, 
once you really got that personal relationship with some of these inmates, that's when you realize like there's so much more to the story than the news credits people with. Mm, you got it. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. That's the heart of everything, mm -hmm. really. Was, like, was, was, if it's your sibling or your mother or father, you'd be thinking differently than if you're looking at it from the public. Sure, eye. sure. Was, um, I don't know, this could be, was there a last question? Um, was there ever a point with uh, any of the inmates that you were like in, like that you were uh, the advisor to, spiritual advisor? That like, I don't know, maybe maybe your first inmate. Did you ever? Um, I was like, Patrick Sonier. Patrick Sonier. Did you ever like? Were you shocked and like? Were you ever like? Uh, surprise in yourself that you like found like um, compassion in these people. Did you ever go into meeting one of these people assuming that you would see evil in them? And assuming well, that, like, it's it's an interesting dynamic, really. I mean, when you go into death row, you know you're going to visit people there to be with people who murdered somebody. I don't mm. think that anymore. I just wait till I get to know them because there've been so many innocent ones. Yeah, I don't assume that they're guilty anymore. And I wrote a book about that called The Death of Innocence. And one of the people was from Louisiana, Dobie, and then the other man, Joseph Odell, he was from Virginia. And you, when you meet a person, the personal encounter is its own kind of dynamic that I believe in the dignity of people, even people who are guilty. And so that leads me to treat people in a certain way, to listen to them, to speak to them, to be truthful with them, but to care about them. And that colors what I can receive from them, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Because if I go in and seeing them as evil, and did you know that when you bring somebody to trial, you can never call a person evil? Yeah. You knew that? Oh, sorry. No. You said oh, that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sorry. Well, you know it now, no, so I, you I, could I, say, I, yeah. I, yeah so. I didn't know that. No, I thought I you could say, this person's evil. And no, you can't ever say a person's evil. All you can say is the actions are evil. Yeah. And, um, just one more thing. With the current event of, I'm trying to remember his last name. It's Richard. Glossop. Yeah. Like the word gossip with L in it. Glossop. Glossop. Um, so on the 16th, it's, he's scheduled to be executed. What, what's your take on this? On this whole well, they just. The case. It just seems kind of. I mean, they're just getting evidence out that points to his innocence, and the lawyers are saying, just give us time, because mm -hmm. we've had a very short period of time. Because this investigation, nothing was done in this trial. The defense was just terrible. Do you wish you could spend more time with him, uh, like, in these days, rather than... Well, there are people working for him full-time, and we've done major media things. He's getting, like, 400 letters a day. Ah, uh, yeah. And uh, and and so I know he's getting support and my personal physical presence. But I'm leave when I leave here Sunday. I'm going to Oklahoma. We're gonna have another press conference on Monday, and I'll be seeing him Monday afternoon. I'll be visiting with him and be with him. And you know, you dwell in hope. And what makes me dwell in hope is not just wishing for it, but working for it. Mm -hmm. And so, so I've been able to dwell in that hope. If he's killed. I'll be with him, and I'm going to face that when we come to it. But every time he asks me, Sister Ellen, what do you think's going to happen on 16th? I go, you're not going to die, Richard. You're not going to die. And so it's like hope. And then you're working like mad to get the evidence out and get it out to the public.
There have been three over 300,000 signatures now that have been signed from countries all over the world for Rich Colossus. So you got to educate the public so that there's a climate of people mm-hmm. saying, wait, are we sure we want to execute this guy? And then that can help judges do the right thing, can help a governor do the right thing. That's why I think like, after you know, getting to meet you today and hearing a lot of your story, I, I feel like a lot of people haven't like, taken enough time to really think about no. each side, and I think that's a huge problem with what's going on and why there's not enough action being taken. And that's why Susan Sarandon wanted to get the movie at Demi Walken out there because it's really a film that brings you over to both sides and helps you go deep and reflect. And that's what spirituality does for us too. Helps us go deeper below the surface of things and say, wait a minute, what's really going on here? Thank you. That's a fantastic Thank you so much. Yeah. Most noble, wonderful interview I've ever done. We definitely rank up. All right, you know, like, I I saw that you've been on like CNN, sixty minutes, and all that. So I'm sure we're near the top. Oh, <laughs> right, a little above Oprah. I, a little above Oprah. Like CNN, 